This is Hanukkah. So we'll talk a little bit about Hanukkah. First of all, let's start from the very beginning. Hanukkah really is the only universal holiday, only holiday that we all keep, that did not affect the whole Jewish people. The reason it did not, or the, the way we see that it did not affect any, everybody, is from the fact that if you're familiar with the history, when the second base of Mikdash was built, a minority, a small percentage of the Jewish people made what I guess you would call today Aliyah, that rose up to the Beis HaMikdash. And if you read the Gemara, you find that not only was it only a minority that went up to the Beis HaMikdash, but it was the inferior minority that went up to the Beis HaMikdash. The elite, in quotes, remained in Bavel, remained in Babylonia. And the Gemara tells us that when Ezra, the great prophet Ezra, went up, he was called Shiraz Tzien, in the second return, and um, he took with him Jewish people, he made Bavel like Selus Nikia. Ezra went up and he designed it in such a way where he deliberately left the choicest, the best in Bavel. Any person whose yichas, whose genealogy, whose family ties were uh, unquestionable, um, Ezra left. All the problems he took along with him. All the spakes, there's a lot of major situations then with intermarriage and, and things of this sort. And it took all the questions with him. He left the Silas, the choice of Jewish people in Bavel. And that's what the Chazal tell us, that Eretz Yisrael is Isa Lagabe Bavel, and Kol Ha'ilam Kul is Isa Lagabe Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is considered inferior in terms of Yiches to Bavel, like a dough is to fine flour. And the whole world is Isa Lagabe Yisrael, like a dough, like a mixture, is like a tumult compared to Eretz Yisrael. And Ezra went up to Ezra. Israel, and one of the first things that Ezra did was... Uh, one of the great uh, endeavors of Ezra Sefer was to trace people's genealogy and put them where they belong. Kairim should be Kairim, Levim should be Levim. People from each Shevet should belong to their Shevet. And unfortunately, he exposed a lot of illegitimacy. And he had to deal with all those questions. And it says in the Rambam that before Mashiach comes, this is a very great controversy, that kind of a Yichas has to take place. But the Gemara uses a very beautiful uh, line. But the peoples who got assimilated to the Jewish people, whose yiches is not so ideal, they're not disposed of, they're not uh, pushed away, they're simply, they lose the yiches. They don't belong to a tribe, and therefore they have a different relationship to the Holy Land and so on. Whatever it is, the entire event of Hanukkah happened in the Holy Land. So that group, that movement of people that remained behind in Babylonia, didn't even know what happened. Maybe they knew what happened, but it certainly did not happen to them. It happened someplace else. It happened in a different part of the world. Um, and yet, Hanukkah is a yomtif that we all keep. Right? Purim, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot naturally involved the whole Jewish people. It happened in the desert. We were all in one place. Purim was unique. The Jewish nation was already dispersed and scattered and disintegrated and you know, all over the place. But Ahasuerus ruled over the whole planet, or at least the civilized world, and by consequence, by, as a result, um, he ruled over the Jewish people wherever they were. There's no place to run and hide. Hanukkah, on the other hand, was only over Eretz Yisrael. Now, the, the logical reason why Hanukkah is separated from other holidays, that we, we all universally celebrate it, even though it affected a segment, a portion of the Jewish nation, um, is because it was in relationship with the Beis HaMikdash. It was in conjunction with the Beis HaMikdash. 
And I guess ultimately that would have to be the resolution to this. You know, Hanukkah is one of those things that even though it affects a portion, it affects the whole, because it's centered around the house of God. The Beis Hamikdash belongs to all the Jewish people. Having said that, there's, if you will, there's another dimension to it. And the other dimension to it is that there's two reasons to celebrate a miracle, to celebrate an event within the framework of Judaism, the framework of Torah. The first is, a miracle happened. Historically, the Jewish nation is a nation of miracles. We are an existent a people who lives on miracles. That's where we survive, that's where we are. And the Rebbe always talks about the, uh, the refusal of some of us, or all of us, on some level, to concede, to admit to ourselves, so to speak, that we are a miraculous people. And unfortunately, when we fail to identify ourselves as, as a nation of miracles, we, so to speak, push the miracles away. Um, and when a miracle happens to, to the Jewish people, the Abishta wants us to celebrate these miracles and to, to thank Hashem and to make a party and so on. The reason to do this is not so much because Hashem needs our gratitude, but we need to show our gratitude to Him. We want to demonstrate to Him our appreciation for our sake, this is a miracle. Is one of the great things that Hashem infuses or inspires within the framework, within the fabric of creation, to remind people of His dominance, of His being in charge, so to speak, in a world that quite often seems to run out of control and have its own agenda and its own inertia. So we we are supposed to celebrate miracles, but miracles as such are narrow in scope. Meaning to say, if a miracle happens to me, I have to celebrate it. You're my friend. You come to my party. But you don't celebrate like I celebrate it. It's my miracle. Um, how many years am I going to celebrate the miracle? Well, it has to do with how large the miracle is. It has to do with how far-reaching the miracle is. The Chazal speak about commemorating miracles that happen to your parents or grandparents. Right? The Chazal tells us, there's a blessing that you say, you come to certain spaces, you say, God did a miracle for me in this place. Or, to my fathers, to my, my ancestry in such and such a place. But, when we perform uh, a, a service or a, uh, an expression of a thanksgiving, as it were, like we had last week, of showing gratitude to Hashem for a miracle that He performed, at a certain point it becomes stale. When people move from one place to another, when the identity of the people who relate directly to the miracle, either personally or through lineage, disintegrates. Just to hang on to events that have happened in the, in the past that don't have meaning to specific people in a real way is not, it's not, it's not, it's not Yiddishkeit, it's not logical. It's, it's, it's what they call, it gets stale after a while. And uh, Yiddishkeit likes to keep things fresh. So miracles are celebrated and eventually the miracle just goes away. It goes away by osmosis. You don't take it away, it ends. You know, I'll give you an example. In the contrary, in the negative. Um, for many hundreds of years, Jewish people in Poland used to fast on the 20th day of Sivan to mark the, the uprising of Chmelenitsky, the pogroms of 1648-49. And even earlier than that, that day was declared a fast because of the uh, blood libel by Rabbi Tam. <coughs> Nobody fasts Chav Sivan. The Rebbe points out when the previous Rebbe lived in Poland, even while in Poland, he didn't fast Chav Sivan. Someone came in a declaration, we're no longer fasting Chafsevin. It just, so to speak, dissipated. You know, during the era of the blood libel, during the era of Shmodes Achmonsan, you know, it, it was just so appropriate to fast Chafsevin, you fasted. But eventually, just by osmosis, it just, it's brought in Shulchan Aruch. 
And people don't fast the 20th of Sivan. And the same is true in Jewish history. Many communities had personal Purims. Not on the 14th of Adar. Some given day of the year where a great miracle occurred and they established a Purim where they would celebrate in a Purim-like fashion. You know, when their lives were in danger, where they would tend Shalach and eat and drink and be merry to remember the Abish's miracle. What happened to all these Purims? You can read about them in the history books. You read about them in, in, you know, in, 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 in incredible Torah sources. That for so many decades or so many centuries even, there was a Purim celebrated in Istanbul or celebrated in Damascus or celebrated in Baghdad or celebrated in Alexandria in Egypt or Cairo or Fez in Morocco and so on. What happened to all these? They just seem to go away by themselves. And that's logical. Logical because uh, you celebrate a Yom Tov when the Yom Tov has meaning to you. When the Yom Tov ceases to have meaning for you, you stop celebrating it. Um, historically, Hashem has performed many miracles, even for the whole Jewish nation. Not every miracle that occurred, even to the nation of Israel as a whole, is a celebration that we keep for all times. It was kept for a while, a generation, two generations, three generations, and it goes away. It dissipates, it just sort of melts into the, you know, it just goes into the past. Um, certainly miracles that occurred to a segment of the Jewish world, after a certain point they dissipate. There's a there's a there's a, a tractate, which is not Mamish in the Shas, but it's sort of like an addendum to the Shas, that's called Megillus Tainus. Megillus Tainus means the scroll of fasts. Megillus Tainus is a book that enumerates scores of days, literally many times 20 days, um, the Jewish people had semi-yomtivs, quasi-kind of yomtivs, and you're not allowed to fast on those days. You're not allowed to say, you're not allowed to fast, you're not allowed to say eulogies. I mean, Chabad B'chal doesn't say eulogies, but in certain communities, when somebody passes away, they make a eulogy. But if he passes away on holidays, on Chalamoid, if you're making a funeral on days, so you're not allowed to be masked. You have to lessen the avelis, lessen the mourning and the hysteria and so on. We don't keep Megillus Tainus anymore. We don't do it. People do fast on those days. People don't mark those moments in time. There are various reasons for them. For it, one of them is because the Beis Amikdash was destroyed, and most of these houses have to do with the Beis Amikdash. Another is time. Time. They've become historical events rather than personal events. There's a handful. You can count them on one hand. Pesach, Shuvah, Sukkot, Chanukah, Purim, or Purim, Chanukah, that don't go away. They're just part of the fabric of Jewish life forever, and it's a, it's a whole different story. Why? Because we are not celebrating these events merely because Hashem performed a miracle. Miracles, like everything else, occur in the framework of time, in the dimension called time. And one of the uh, inexorable details about time is you can only travel in time one way at a certain predetermined speed, uh, pretty much. And, uh, and when an event happened at a certain point, in the fabric of time, and you travel far enough away from it, it's so far in the past, you can't even look back and see it anymore. The reason we celebrate the handful of holidays we celebrate is because they're not just miracles. They're much, much more than a miracle. To say it in the Hasidic form, these events actually predate the miracle that inspired them. The holiday of Pesach, came into being in the year 2448 because of the great miracle of the killing of the firstborn of the Egyptians and the, the miraculous and dramatic exodus of the Jewish people from Mitzrayim. So the holiday called Pesach, where we commemorate, where we, we honor, where we celebrate Jewish faith, Jewish birth, the birth of the Jewish people, Jewish humility, and some other nice stuff, right? To be sure, 
this moment in time, the 15th day of the month of Nisan, represented this concept much before the event ever occurred. In other words, when the Abishta created the world, when Hashem created the world, He created time. Time is an entity, it's a creation, it's a thing. It's a thing unto itself, according to our belief. The Rebbe has a letter where he distinguishes these two types of time. There's relative time, which he says is what Einstein is discussing, that time and space and matter are interdependent. He says, but then there's a the concept of zmanatsmi, time as an entity unto itself. And time as an entity unto itself is a created phenomenon. Ibishta made it. And it's not just one big chunk of, 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 of passive uh, existence that allows things to journey through, but it's made up of units, of parts. Like space is made up of parts, time is made up of parts as well, of units. And not all units of time are created with the same energy. There's ordinary units of time, there's extraordinary units of time. For example, Shabbos is special. Shabbos is not special because we keep it. We keep Shabbos because the day is special. When it comes the seventh day of the week, if there's not a single man or woman on the planet who celebrates Shabbos, Shabbos is special. It's the time. The energy of the time is distinct, is different than the energy of a Sunday and a Monday. And the same is true of our holidays. It comes Pesach. The events that, ha- that happened, that led to the establishment of the holiday of Pesach, really didn't create the holiday. They revealed the holiday. They exposed to us part of the fabric of creation is on the 15th day of this month, you're going to celebrate freedom, you're going to celebrate faith, you're going to celebrate humility, and so on. And the same is true of Shruis, and the same is true of Sukkis, and the same is true of Purim, and the same is true of Hanukkah. Those events have survived the history of the Jewish people better than other events, not only because they were more significant, or because there's a book in the scriptures, a book in the Tanakh, written to represent them. They survive because spiritually they are transcendent. In other words, the story of Purim is not the reason for the celebration of Purim. The story of Purim is simply what told us about this day. The story of Hanukkah is not celebrated exclusively only because of the events that led to the establishment of this holiday. The, the, the celebration of Hanukkah has to do with the fact that this day has an energy that's worthwhile to be celebrated every year from the beginning of the time till the end of time. It is only that as the Pasuk states, Hakel Asa, Yafav Eitid, Abish does everything on an appropriate and on a healthy system or a healthy schedule, and as a result, the time has to be right for the holiday to become revealed. So there's something which separates Pesach, Shuvah, Sukkot, Hanukkah, Purim from various other holidays, and that is, most other holidays are the result of an event. Something happened, we make a holiday. Well, eventually we forget about the event, we stop keeping the holiday. These five holidays are not the result of the event, they're the cause for an event. The reason we went out of time on the 15th day of Nisan is because this day is destined to redeem. And the reason we received the Torah on the 6th or the 7th of Stephen is because this day is destined for the day of the giving of the Torah. And the same is true of the others. But everything has a time. When it comes this day in a particular year, God reveals to us through the events, through the miracles, the significance of these holidays. This is why most holidays come and go, and a handful of holidays just stick around. They stick around not because they just somehow have better luck, but because they're spiritually connected to time. And when this event happens again the next year, spiritually the energy is here all over again. Hanukkah, we celebrate Mesidas Nefesh, 
in conjunction with the sanctity of the house of God. Purim, we celebrate Mesidas Nefesh, in conjunction or in the framework of that even on a level where the Jewish people are thrown to chance and random, called a goyro, Purim, what does Purim mean? A lottery, perfectly chance, perfect, uh, you know, chance, arbitrariness, still is a favoritism of Hashem to the Jewish people. And there's a long philosophy to each of these, naturally, to be most involved. But the essence of it is, the timelessness of these holidays is not because they just had better luck, but because spiritually, they're more meaningful than the events that inspired them in the first place. Which is why, I don't know if I mentioned it here, but I've certainly mentioned it in other places, we seem to find certain things that have a tendency to fall on certain days. One of the examples of this is Hanukkah itself. 1,000 years and some before the miracle of Hanukkah, there was another event that occurred on the 25th day of Kislev. And that is that in the year 2448, when the Jewish people left Egypt, God Almighty, and they made the golden calf, and God Almighty told them to build them a home. They started to build a home the day after Yom Kippur in the year 2449. They finished building the Abish's home on the 25th day of Kislev. And the Jewish people came to Meshav and said, we're all finished. Let's put it up and let's get to work. And Meshav said, let me go consult my boss. Or our boss. And the Abish said, wait till the end of other. Wait till it's Chedishness. So it's brought in Svarid that the day complained and said, that's not fair. I'm sorry. Vashgach Aprate. The... the um, the uh, Mishkan was completed on this day. Why am I being displaced by another day in the calendar? And the Abishah said, your time will come. And then a thousand or so years later, the same day became an occasion to celebrate the same type of an event. The event of Chanukah, renewing the house of God. Just waited a thousand years. And of course, there's an involved discussion. This itself doesn't make sense. Why, why should it wait a thousand years? And maybe I'll talk about it in a moment. But the timelessness of these holidays is not just because of the enormity of the miracles. The timelessness of these holidays is because these holidays transcend the miracles that inspire them. I, I believe I mentioned this to you last week. Yutas Kislev, yeah, is a celebration of the Alter Rebbe's redemption from prison. About 550 or 600 years before the Alter Rebbe lived, there was a great sage who wrote a book called Charles the Chuvas Menashemayim. That means to say basically responses from heaven, questions and answers from heaven. He would communicate with the heavens and they would answer his questions. It's a cool book. <laughs> he would ask questions, put them under his pillow, and get answers. And in one of the many chuvas, in the Sefer, he has a chuva which he finishes with the following words. Today is Tuesday, the 19th day of the month of Kislev, and it is a day for Basura, for good news. At the time that this was written, nobody understood the significance of this day. And in Mamish, 550, 600 years later, all of a sudden, this Kislev becomes a holiday. So the Rebbe refers to this event, refers to this in, in, in his writings on Yitas Kislev. And he explained, this is proof of this notion of that when the Abish created the world, he created time, and he created special units in time. Yutas Kislev is a special unit in time. But the time for the revelation of that special unit was not yet, or hadn't yet come. So the day is special, we don't know yet why and how. So when Hanukkah comes, yes, we're celebrating the event, no question. The Abish has performed miracles for our ancestors, our patriarchs. Uh, in those days, at this particular time, that's true. But that's the chitzayis, that's the peripheral yamtav. The deeper yamtav is there's a certain energy associated with the holiday of Hanukkah that is timeless. Timeless not only in the future, but also in the past, from year one of creation 
Chafei Kislev was special. People simply didn't know about it for about 3,500 years. And of course the question becomes, okay, so then what is special about Hanukkah? So you have to examine the events, you have to examine the, the heroism of the Jewish people, you have to examine the miracles, and on that basis try and figure out what it is about Hanukkah that renders Hanukkah a special day. And in a nutshell, in essence, it has to do with, uh, I'll say it two different ways, an irrational commitment to sanctity, to holiness. Or said alternatively, that the relationship that Hashem has with the Jewish people is inherently super logical. It's bigger than reason. It's bigger than wisdom. The story of Hanukkah is essentially a story of Mesiris Nefesh, of self-sacrifice. The miracle of Hanukkah is the miracle of self-sacrificing, self-sacrifice prevailing, winning. The, the story of the jug of oil as it brought in so many svarim, what makes it so special is that it was an unnecessary miracle. According to Jewish law, when the whole community is unclean, spiritually unclean, you can offer up the oil in an unclean state. <coughs> I'm sorry. The fact that the Jewish people did not offer up the oil was a stubbornness, was an insistence. No, we're going to do it right. It was beyond the letter of the law. Now we're going to bring pure oil. What was the whole big deal? The big deal was we just gave our lives precisely for this. We gave our lives for what? Not for the, for the Jewish people. Not even for Judaism. But for the sanctity of Judaism, which is what the Greeks had such a major problem with. This notion of transcendence, of holiness, of spirituality, of, quote, more than meets the eye. This is what got under the skin of the Greeks. That's what the Greeks had a problem with. That was their issue. And Yidin Mamais and Nefesh, not just for themselves, for their own survival, or even for the survival of their culture. They were Mamais and Nefesh for the survival of the sanctity, for the oil, for the essence, for the richness, for the soul that is um, the Jewish people and the Jewish faith. And the Abish that made a nest, the Abish that performed a great miracle for us. That, uh, that, that we found one jug of pure oil and it burned eight days. Hashem, so to speak, responded. Hashem let us know through His reaction that He agrees with us. But yes, it, it was worth sacrificing themselves for this cause, even though arguably not only was it not logical, it arguably was irreligious. It may have been against Judaism to do what they did. And yet the Abishter demonstrated his support for it by providing them with this one jug of oil that remained pure. In any event, so that's just an insight into Hanukkah. So why do we keep Hanukkah if it's, if it's narrow, if it didn't affect the whole Jewish people? Because it's not a matter of how many people it affected. It's a matter of how spiritually significant an event it is. Hanukkah is not only the celebration of a miracle. It's a big mistake because we've had many miracles. We've had many, many miracles occur in our history. Why don't we celebrate uh, the victory at Antebi? And the truth of the matter is, those people who participated in Mamash have a chiyuf to do it every year, to make a party and to celebrate the miracle of God. Why don't we celebrate, I mean, the, the Jewish people, the victory we had, la the miracle we had last week. You know, unfortunately, miracles are happening in front of our eyes. But they're bittersweet. So we just, we go numb. Not that we're not numb without it. There were six Jews, I think, killed in Kenya. They shot two, two heat-sensitive missiles. 
at a plane loaded with people. There is no explanation why one wasn't enough to knock that plane out of the sky. But we just don't see. We just don't see the hand of God in our lives. I, I, I'm so convinced of this that I'm even saying it. The, we are a miraculous people. We always were, we are, and always will be. Everyone is all cooked up about the tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people. And it's a terrible time, and it's, it's reminiscent of the Holocaust. You hear all kinds of terrible things people are saying. Let's not forget a couple of things. Number one, pardon me for being so realistic, our destiny is in our own hands. And nobody else's. This hasn't happened in a very, very long time. And that's a problem. Because <laughs> you can't pray to God when God says, I've given you what you need to do, just do it. And there's another part of this also. And that the other part of it is the, the way that Eber would say it. Hashem has been performing miracles for us since the Holocaust that are very unusual. He just doesn't like when we tell him no thank you. We've been telling him no thank you far too many times. You know, when, 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 when a week or two passes and there are no suicide bombings in the land of Israel, yeah, so we all relax, yeah? What we don't know is that that means that every minute for those three weeks there were miracles happening. How many of them were, 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 were thwarted, were, were prevented, were accidents, whatever it is? Yeah? So what do we say? The IDF. What IDF? The Rebishter. Who watches the Jewish people watch them. So how come sometimes tragedies occur? So first of all, obviously, the Rebishter still wants us to live in this world. And second of all, you can trace, you can almost directly link every unfortunate tragedy to a weakness on the part of the Jewish people. Now why is appeasement such a terrible thing? Why is the Rebbe so opposed to a peace treaty and to, to appeasement and to getting along? Why does the Rebbe say that anytime you show weakness you're going against the traitor? And the Rebbe said more than once that the, the, the Rebbe said that when the Yom Kippur War started, the Rebbe said the Yom Kippur War is the consequence of the ceasefire. This is before your time, it's even before my time. So why do we win it? Huh? We win it. How many people did we lose? Israel was never the same after Yom Kippur, Muhammad, never. The pride, the pride that Israelis had was killed in Yom Kippur, Muhammad. And we did it to ourselves because we're trying to appease this one and the other one. Why? And the answer is because there's, a, there's, a, there's actually laws. There's Jewish law. There's a religious mandate about how you fight wars. And part of that mandate is that when you have an enemy, you cannot... Uh, 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 Put yourself in a situation where you are not fully protecting yourself against your enemy. I guess that's the, the way to say it. You're not allowed to put yourself in the slightest position of danger, no matter what the so-called political um, benefits may be. It's against Jewish law. Jewish law does not allow a Jew to put himself in danger. It certainly does not allow him to put somebody else's life in danger. It certainly does not allow him to put him the millions of lives in danger. And the person says, yeah, I know, but we're temporarily putting people's lives in danger, and at the end, it'll be safer. Unfortunately, Judaism does not allow for that stipulation. The Shulchan Aruch doesn't give you that option. Shulchan Aruch doesn't say, well, weigh the option. You know, politics is not, does not exist. Take out the Rambam and the laws of kings. You don't have to read a lot. It's one or two chapters where the Rambam discusses how you have to behave in wartime. And you'll see, you're not allowed to be, you're not allowed to be weak. It doesn't make sense militarily, and it's against Tater. Push it against Tater, it's against Allah. So the Rebbe keeps on saying that if Jewish people would have a little pride and push it, follow what the Tater says, they would see not just miracles, they would see only miracles of the Eivishter. 
But anyways, I got a little carried away there. Um, um, hang on a second. Um, but we are a nation of miracles. That's, that's, that's what we are. The reason certain miracles, and we have to celebrate every miracle, the reason certain miracles are celebrated without an end is because they're more than miracles. If they were miracles alone, we would have forgotten about Hanukkah a long time ago. We'd have 50 Hanukkahs since then. Hanukkah is still here because it celebrates not an event, but an idea, a transcendent truth that is connected to this time. Go ahead. I got myself into this mess. Now I've got to answer everybody's questions. No, if you're not allowed to endanger yourself, right. like you're not allowed to walk to Hebron, to go to... It's a very interesting question, and it's a question for Adov. And if you can ask Adov, he may tell you not a lot to go. Seriously, you should know that in the late 60s when they were establishing uh, the community in Hebron, so in those days, it was the left, the far left, that was all about Tishavim, settling the land at Nachalut, to settle the territories. And uh, they came to the Rebbe and asked the Rebbe that he should encourage Hasidim to settle in Hebron. The Rebbe made a Yishuv in Tzfas, but not in Hebron and not in Beis Lechem. So the Rebbe told him then, 1968, I hear that you're planning to give it back. And they told the Rebbe, what are you talking about? It's out of the question. This is ours. You know? and, uh, and the Rebbe said, and, and they told the Rebbe that, you know, you have to. And the Rebbe said to them, there's no Chiyav and Teira to be Mesa Nefesh for Yishavadas. You don't have to risk your life to settle the land of Israel. You have to settle the land of Israel, but not at, 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 at danger to your own life. And the Rebbe said he refused to make an official, so to speak, statement that his Hasidim should settle the territory. The Rebbe's vision, it wasn't because he didn't trust God, because he didn't trust the government. Okay.